Father, we have come here and we are so thankful, Lord, as we think about how sinful we are. We, we know ourselves very well. You know us just as well. But because of your great mercy and grace, you sent into this world, made a little lower than the angels, your own precious son, the eternal word, Jesus. And he came and he lived us a perfect life, never sinning in thought or word or deed. And he went to the cross, and on the cross, you laid upon him the collective guilt of all who would believe that he was their Savior. Your own word in Isaiah says that it pleased you to bruise him that you made his soul an offering for sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. And he died to pay the debt for our sins. In the grave he was buried, his soul passing into the subterranean realms. Then on the third day, rising again from the dead, so that we could be declared innocent just before you in spite of our sinfulness. And Lord, we give you thanks for it in Christ's holy and glorious name. To you, all glory, majesty, and honor belong. Amen. Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter number 2. Romans chapter number 2. Romans chapter 2. I want to give you a sermon this morning entitled, uh, No Exemptions Except What's Received from the Son. No Exemptions Except What Are Received from the Son. And just uh, <laughs> Brother Gammon helped me remember this. There is youth group tonight at 6 o'clock. And uh, I think I saw Christine somewhere. We're good for that, Christine. Christine, Christine and I will be there. 6 o'clock. Uh, there's something else I want to make mention of, but I've forgotten what it was. Maybe during the sermon I'll remember and tell you later. No exemptions except what is derived from the Son. Romans chapter 2, and uh, a long reading of Scripture, which I'm not going to do, but we'll walk through this together. Exemptions. You know, a a few weeks ago, I guess several weeks ago now, President Biden, he insisted that all the American people be forced to uh, get vaccinated or face consequences. And this has uh, caused people to start to say, I don't want to get vaccinated, and I want an exemption. And there's all kinds of exemptions that have been applied for. I've seen some websites you can go to, and you can, you can fill out a form for a religious exemption that exempts you from, getting, from, getting, having to be, from being forced to get a vaccine for religious reasons, those kind of things. So exemptions are something that are on our hearts and minds. Exemptions, if it's out there. An exemption, in case you don't know it, is the process of, be, of freeing or the state of being free from an obligation or a liability that is imposed on others. An exemption is the process of freeing or state of being free from an obligation or liability that is imposed on others. So this means that people can be free from something that other people have to do. I remember when I was a kid, uh, when I was a young kid, you didn't have to wear a seatbelt when you were in the car. Remember that? My mom's right arm was the seatbelt, whoosh, <laughs> all the time. 
And then they had the seatbelt laws. And, you know, we watched as state by state, every state passed seatbelt legislation. Even the great state of Illinois, where I'm from. And, uh, but my grandpa, a wily character, he didn't want to wear a seatbelt. And so he went down to his doctor and he said, Doctor, that seatbelt hurts my stomach. I can't wear it. And my grandpa, he didn't, he didn't have a big stomach. He just, he just didn't like to wear a seatbelt at all. So he got his doctor to write him a slip of paper that said, This man has a medical condition which precludes him, which exempts him from having to wear a seatbelt. And so my grandpa, he never had to wear a seatbelt. And he'd get pulled over by a police officer. He'd give him that little piece of paper and they'd say, All right, Mr. Basham, have a great day. He had an exemption. Exemptions mean you've been freed from something that other people have to do. A few years ago, we were at Frontier City in Oklahoma City, which is a Six Flags derivative, but it's in Oklahoma. We were there. We're in the lines. We're trying to ride these rides. And it was very busy. I think we were there on Memorial Day when it was a, kind of a low price day. And we were there, lots of people. And we're waiting in these long lines to ride roller coasters. And while we're in line, I'm standing there in line, you know, sweating like crazy. You know, I'm miserable. I hate this line. And all of a sudden, a couple kids pop up. They show a little badge to the guy, to the gatekeeper, to the ride attendant. And all of a sudden, those two punks got ushered all the way to the front of the line. They got right on in front of me and took off on the next ride. I said, what is the meaning of this? You know, so I asked one of the people, I said, what is this thing? And they said, it's a flash pass. You flash your badge, and you get the pass, and you get to go around the line. Well, I said, that is exactly what I want. <laughs> so I tried, to, I tried to buy one, but I found out they were very expensive, so I could not get one, and that caused me to become very class. To, it, it, it aggravated my class prejudice. Because like, here I am, I'm the poor man being pushed down by the rich man <laughs> and his spoiled brat kids, you know. Those kids were exempted, and it irritated me that they were exempted. Well, so what? Well, in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, God is telling us to depend the Apostle Paul that no one is exempt from God's final wrath. No one is exempt from being judged by God in the last day. Now, I've been talking to people about the gospel for a long time, and when you tell somebody that they deserve to face the wrath of God, their normal reaction to that is, maybe others, but not me. Because people tend to be very, very self-righteous. People tend to think that they are better than they really are. My friend Don Fortner, who's now at the Lord, he says this, that a person who has really come to know Christ as their Savior has also come to really know their own innate sinfulness and they're deeply humbled by their own salvation because they know what they are and they know how they've come to be a child of God through God's grace. Now in this section of Scripture here, Paul gives us some help. The first thing I want you to notice is in chapter 2, verse number 1, where the apostle says this. After chapter 1, he delineates, he, deline <laughs> he tells all the sins that people are guilty of, all the things that people do. And in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. 
the reason that people are self-righteous is because they always compare themselves to other people. And if you do that, you will always find someone who was less good than you. You'll always find somebody who is worse than you. The Apostle Paul says that when we pass judgment on people while being guilty of the very same things we're condemning, this tells us something about us. Now, have you ever had this happen to you as a parent? And I've been a parent for, well, let's see, uh, over 20 years I've been a parent. And there's been times when I've been yelling at my kids for something. You ever yell at your kids? In love. In love. It's tempered with love. And you're getting on to them for something they've been doing. And while you're getting on to them, have you ever had that epiphany of, wait a minute, I'm getting on to them for something that I do myself. (laughs) I've gotten on to my kids. I wrote down some of the things I've gotten on to them for. Not a whole lot of things because my kids are really good kids. Amen. Has it ever, this this has happened to me. While I was scolding my kid for being irreverent, lazy, or rebellious, it struck me I'm the exact same way. (laughs) who taught you to be so (laughs) saucy-tongued who taught you to be so irreverent and rebellious they're looking at the guy (laughs) you did you did we know the old maxim that when you point your finger at somebody else how many are pointing back at you Uh, a whole bunch of them we tend to say we are better than others because we compare ourselves to other people we judge other people as being guilty of sins while we ourselves are doing the same sins. John Gill says that verse 1 means that man's judgment is always off. It's always askew. It's always inappropriate. We lived in a town in South Arkansas for five years. And in that, that city, uh, the police department, they, they set records in the state for the number of seatbelt tickets that they wrote. They set records for the number of seatbelt tickets they wrote. A seatbelt ticket in Hope, Arkansas is only $30. How do I know? Well, I've given them $30 more than once. $30 for a seatbelt ticket. Now, I was, I was angry about the first one I got because after I got it, I was sitting at a stoplight and the police officer who had just given me a citation for not wearing my seatbelt pulled up beside me at the red light to make a left. I am now wearing my seatbelt, as he has instructed me and fined me for, right? I look over at him. Guess what he ain't wearing? He's not wearing his seatbelt. This made me very angry. I was at church on Wednesday night, and the lady who was the city accountant, she went to our church, and I was talking to her, and I, I, was, I was telling her. I said, this makes me so angry. I said, there I am. I just got a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt from a guy who doesn't wear his seatbelt. And she said, you know why he wasn't wearing his seatbelt? I said, why? Because the chief of police in that city had said that none of the police officers had to wear their seatbelts because it was too dangerous for them to wear a seatbelt while driving a patrol car. They could get hung up on the seatbelt as they're getting out of it in a difficult situation. I said, do you mean they're writing seatbelt tickets to me when they don't even obey the the law? She said, yes. She said, and what's worse is if we hit a certain threshold of seatbelt tickets, we get a big grant from the federal government for traffic safety. It makes me crazy. There they are writing tickets for things that they do themselves. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba in the Bible where David, a man who had, was very wealthy and had many wives, and one day he goes outside on, 
outside the palace and he sees a woman taking a bath. And she's very beautiful. Her name's Bathsheba. And he lusts after her and he has her come over to the house and they commit adultery together. And then he sends her home, you know. She was married to a man named Uriah. Uriah was his, she was his, his only wife. In that situation, they commit a sin together. And, and the, Lord, the Lord knows about it because the Lord knows about all of our sins. And the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to go and have a talk with David about this, to tell David you've, been, you've done something that's wrong. And so Nathan the prophet, he comes and he talks to David and he tells David a story. He tells David, that, and the story is this, is that there was a, a rich man who had a hundred sheep and, he, and one of his friends came over to see him and so he decided to have a barbecue for his friend. And instead of taking one of his 100 sheep, he went next door to his neighbor's house and stole his neighbor's only sheep, took that sheep and killed it and barbecued it. And David, as a shepherd himself, sees the injustice of this. He becomes so angry about it, he says, this guy should be punished fourfold. He should pay four times the the penalty. He should be held accountable for his sins. David is very upset. And as David is in a rage over the injustice he has seen in others, Nathan the prophet says, David, you're the guy. You've done the exact same thing. You stole Uriah's only wife when you had all these wives. This is how we are. We are unjust people. We condemn others for doing the very things that we do. We always think we are better than we are. We are self-righteous. But my friends, we are unrighteous. And if you're here this morning and you think that you are righteous, I want you to do something for the next week or so. Try keeping track of all the wicked thoughts. Not wicked deeds. Try keeping track of all the wicked thoughts that you have this week. All the bad things that leap into your mind. And you'll see that you are not righteous. The first reason people think that they are righteous is because they compare themselves to others. The second reason people think that they are righteous is because they always change the standard by which they are judged. They move the goalpost. Have you ever played a game with a person who keeps changing the rules as you go along? When your kids do that a lot, don't they? Always changing the rules the way they can win. It's very frustrating. What about living with a person who you're trying to make happy and please, but they keep changing the standard of what makes them happy? They keep moving the, the marks. They keep changing the rules. It's very frustrating. But in chapter 2 here, of verse 2, the apostle tells us that we know that God's judgment against those who do such things, those who do evil, is based on truth is based on truth the way god judges us is based on truth and this has three implications three implications number one the first implication is god's judgment is based on a law or a standard that does not change god's law is fixed it's eternal it's immutable it doesn't change week to week or year to year have you, ever, have you ever looked through a uh, looked through the Constitution of the United States of America? You ever seen that thing? And it has this one amendment that says that alcohol is outlawed. I don't know what amendment that was. What is it? Well, I'm, I'm sorry, Valerie, what are you saying? 19, the 19th Amendment prohibits the sale of alcohol in the United States, I think, 19th. And then there's, if you read a little bit further down, there's another amendment that says the 19th Amendment is out. Is out. <laughs> Rules change. Rules change. But God's law does not change. You see, 
The law that will judge Cain, Abel's brother in the last day, is the same law that will judge Beyonce in the last day. It's the same law. You say, well, the law of the Old Testament seems to be pretty expansive, pretty big. But you know what? The Bible is so helpful to us, it just sums up the law under two things. There are two things that you can understand the law of God by. And it's in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. If you want to turn there, here's what you'll find. It says that there are two great commandments. All the law is summed up under two commandments. The first commandment is to love God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. That's the first commandment. Love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and I think it says all your strength. That's pretty big. I meet people sometimes who say, I love God with all my heart. They lie. They don't love God with all their heart, mind, and soul, and strength. They don't. And you don't. None of you do. And the thing is, is none of you can. None of you can. We are unable to love God as we should. And then the Bible says the second commandment is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is also impossible for us to do. Love our neighbor as ourself. I've had, I've had good neighbors and bad neighbors. How about you? And I don't love them as I love myself. But it's, not, but it's not just the house next door to you. If you're here and you're a man and you're married, you have a wife. She's your closest neighbor. <laughs> She's right there with you. And vice versa. And we have a hard time loving our wives and husbands like we love ourselves. It's very difficult. And then we have children. And children have parents, and it's impossible for us to keep that standard of love up. And that law will judge us in the last day. Did you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul? The second implication here is that God's judgment, if it's based on truth, God's judgment will be for sins that we are really, actually guilty of. You're not going to be judged in the last day for things you did not do. You're going to be judged for things you actually, really did. Now, I'm going to take the time to turn to Revelation chapter 20. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse number 12. Listen to the reading here. This is in the last day at the final judgment. Here's what the word of the Lord says. And I saw, this is Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were just according to what they had done as recorded in the books. God is keeping an, a, a complete record of all the sins you have actually committed. You have committed, and I have committed, more sins than we can even remember. Remember. Have you ever had this memory, this memory problem, where somebody says, Hey, you remember back when such and such happened? You say, ah, no, I don't know, man. I don't have any knowledge of that. And they say, yeah, you do. you got to. And you say, no, I don't. I have no memory of that. It never happened. And then they say, well, do you remember such and such detail? And they start filling in more information. And then all of a sudden, boom. Your mind is filled with the, with the moment and you remember it completely. If you're like me, you still say, I don't remember. Because <laughs> you don't want to go back down that path. 
God knows everything that we've done. There won't be anything charged to you in the last day that you didn't do. God knows what you've done. Proverbs 15 verse 3 says this. It says, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. Back when I was uh, working in uh, children's ministry, I would use this passage. I would talk about the eye in the sky, about a satellite. God's up there. You know, nowadays we can get on Google Earth, and you, know, you, can, you can tour the whole world on Google and see that. Google used to have this worldwide, this round-the-world vacation you could take, and you could just follow it from place to place. And I took Valerie on a worldwide trip one time. <laughs> Show her the world, you know. The eye in the sky looking down. God sees everything that we do and he keeps a record of it because judgment is going to come. And when God judges us, he's going to judge us according to truth. A third implication is that because God is good and because God is a God of truth, he must judge sins. He cannot just overlook sins. He can't just decide, I'm not going to punish that one. He has to punish sin. That's why Jesus Christ had to come into the world and he had to pay the price for sins because God just can't overlook sins. If you do the crime, what? You've got to do the time. If an offense has happened, there must be punishment for that offense. And so in Romans chapter 2, God tells us his judgment is based on truth. A third reason that people think that they are righteous is because they never seem to suffer for the rotten stuff they do. If every time you did a sin, or every time you thought a sin, if you got smacked for it, what do you think would happen? Well, you'd probably stop. I used to have this dog. And the dog, I didn't want my dog to be run out of my backyard all the time. Oh, man, I don't think I should tell this because this is going to go on the Internet and be worldwide famous. But I had this dog, and every time I opened the gate, she'd run out. This made me angry. So how can I stop this dog from doing that? I don't know what I can do. So what I did was I got a, I got a stick, and I opened the gate and stood there by the gate. And every time that dog came up there to the gate, I smacked her with that stick. Every time, whack. Whack, whack. And before very long, I could leave that gate open. She never ran out that gate because she, she associated open gate with getting smacked with a stick. It's kind of what you do to your kids sometimes, isn't it? You say, if you do that again, you're going to get a smack on the hiney, a.k.a. a whipping. And you teach them. We all learn by consequences, don't we? Proverbs I think it's Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 30, I think. It says that the... <laughs> the blueness of the wound cleanses away evil. A bruise cleanses away evil. Have you ever fallen and really hurt yourself? You ever fallen and really hurt yourself? Well, because of the pain from that fall, what do you do about it? If it's caused by something you need to fix, what do you do? You fix it. If it's because there's ice out there on the front porch, what do you do? You throw out some ice melt or you get some shoes with, the, with the, you know, grit. You're more careful. We learn from pain. 
And the reason why people think that they, are so, that they are righteous, that they don't deserve any kind of judgment, is because they do all kinds of sinning and nothing happens to them. Look at the reading. It's Romans 2, verses 3 through 5. Listen to that reading. Romans 2, verse 3. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will, esca- you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubborn and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, people, they mistake God's mercy for indifference. Do you remember this name, Madeline Murray O'Hare? Remember the name of this lady? I read her biography probably about 10 years ago. She's the woman who filed the lawsuits to get prayer out of public schools, teacher-led prayers and scripture reading out of schools. She was upset because her son, when he said the Pledge of Allegiance, that he had to say, under God, and she filed a lawsuit about these things. And in the 1960s, when she was arguing with her Christian parents, her father, her mother was a Presbyterian, her father was a Lutheran, she was arguing with her parents, she was telling them, there is no God, there is no God, and in the middle of this argument, there's a storm outside, lightning is crashing, boom, 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 in the middle of this rainstorm, she runs outside, she says to her parents, I'll prove to you, there is no God, she runs out in their front yard, puts her finger in the sky, and says, God, if you're there, kill me right now. She cursed at God. And you know what God did? Nothing. He didn't send down a lightning bolt from heaven to zap her into eternity. He didn't make the earth open up and swallow her down alive. He didn't cause a car to fly off the street and crush her against the house. God did nothing. She went back inside to her parents and said, See, there is no God. I wouldn't be surprised if Some of you haven't seen somebody do a very similar thing. Because I've seen it done. I've seen people say there is no God and they they look look at heaven and cuss and swear at God and say, if God's there, why didn't he kill me right now? And they say, see, there is no God. People think that because God doesn't punish them for their sins, they must be pretty good or he doesn't exist. Why does God tolerate this? Why does God tolerate Dr. Richard Dawkins, a great mind? Why does he tolerate Dr. Lawrence Krauss, an even greater mind, and the philosopher and essayist Christopher Hitchens, who's now dead? Why did God tolerate them as they traveled across America and the world saying that God is not real, and if God were real, that he was worse than Hitler? Why did God Put up with that. Why does God put up with people for doing such great evils? Well, the answer is in the reading we just did. God is merciful. In verse 4, Do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You see, God is constantly withholding judgment even upon the vilest of sinners. And these vile sinners, because they are so wicked, 
Because they are so self-righteous, they mistake God's mercy and forbearance for either indifference on His part, the absence of His existence, or because they are righteous themselves. Why does God hold back His judgment upon great evil? Well, the answer is because God is merciful. And sometimes God holds back His judgment because God knows that these people who are rebelling against Him now, they are going to be saved in the future. If you, if you read the Bible through, you may read in 2 Kings, like I did recently, about King Manasseh. King Manasseh. King Manasseh became king of, of Israel, or Judah, I'm sorry, when he was 12 years old. And he was king for 55 years. And in his 55 years of reigning over Israel, about 35 of those years was him taking the nation of Israel. And in his power as a potentate, he led the nation of Israel to commit every kind of sin imaginable. The Bible even says this about Manasseh, that he offered his own son as a burnt offering to a false god. And he encouraged other people to do this. He encouraged the ladies of the land to bring forth children, to bear children and take those children and offer them in fiery offerings to the pagan gods. Just so you, just to get an idea of how bad this kind of thing was, there were two ways they would worship Molech in the Old Testament. Two ways with babies. One is they would take a baby and put it on the ground and place over that child a a hollow brass image, put it right over the baby, and then build a fire around that image and cook that baby alive on the inside until it was dead. That's one way they worshipped Molech. The second way they would worship Molech is they had an idol that had arms that reached out like this. And they would lay a baby in the arms of Molech and then build a fire under the baby until the baby would get so hot from the heat that the baby would either die from the smoke or wiggle out of the arms of the idol and fall into the flames and be perished. This is what Manassas led the nation of Israel to do, and that's just the tip of the iceberg of the sins that he led Israel to do. And God judged Manassas for it. And the Bible says in 2 Chronicles that Manasseh, for his wickedness, God raised up the Assyrians, and they came and they attacked Judah, and they took Manasseh captive. And while he was in chains as a prisoner in Assyria, the Bible says he sought the Lord. He cried out to God. And the merciful God of heaven saved him. And he winds up going back and becoming king of Judah again and dedicating the nation of Judah once again to the true and living God. You see, sometimes God withholds his hand of judgment and mercy because he knows that you have an appointment with Jesus and you're going to be saved. And if he kills you before you get saved, well, you can't be saved. (laughs) But he's merciful. Merciful. I hesitate to tell this story because I'm not sure. I'm just going to do it. So there's this guy in New York City, who's a famous serial, famous serial killer. You know what I'm talking about? The son of Sam guy, that's who it is. David Berkowitz. David Berkowitz. Not, I don't remember the number of people that he killed, but he was a serial killer of some renown, and they, they caught him, and he's doing a life sentence in a New York State. 
penitentiary. Since he has been in prison, I think he's been in prison since the mid-80s. Since he's been in prison, he has become a Christian. And conducts a very broad ministry in the prison where he's incarcerated of teaching the Bible, preaching the gospel. He's been up for parole several times and he keeps turning it down. He does. He won't go to the hearings. So he says, I don't, I, you know, I don't deserve to be free on society. I should stay right here where I am in prison where I deserve to be. And there's a guy who did great evil and then becomes a Christian. God saves him. God delays his mercy. That's one reason why God delays his mercy sometimes is he knows that that person has an appointment for salvation in the future. So he restrains his judgment. Other times God withholds his judgment and lets people live and do all kinds of evil things because he is super abundant in mercy to them. To kind of illustrate the extreme level of God's mercy, I'm going to go out on a theological limb. Okay? A theological limb. Right now, there are people who are in Hades. They're in what we call hell most of the time. It's a place of conscious torment. Luke chapter 16 describes it. A place of torment. If you die right now without trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to go from this world straight to hell. And that's where you're going to be, in torment. If Luke 16 is literal, it describes the literal hell right now as being a place of fiery torment, where people are miserable, they're conscious, they know, what, they, know they could be out of there, they know, there are, they know the truth, and they're aware of their condition, and they're suffering now. That's where people like Cain is at. He's been there for 4,000 years. But that is not the final place for those who have died without Christ. Because what's going to happen is there's another judgment coming. It's the great white throne judgment. It takes place after the millennial kingdom. When all the dead are delivered up from, from hell. And they're brought to the final place of judgment. And then at that judgment that we read about in Revelation 12, at that judgment, at that time, God opens the books. They, the books have not been opened against them yet. At that final judgment, the books are opened. And then they are cast into the lake of fire that burns forever and ever where they are tormented day and night. So right now, even people who are suffering in hell are not facing the full glory of God's wrath. That's still to come. So even right now, while they're under judgment, they're experiencing what I interpret as mercy. It's a thing to think about. God is incredibly merciful. But friends, judgment is going to come. There's no way to escape it. In the words of the late R.G. Lee from Memphis, Tennessee, he said there is a payday coming. God delays his judgment, but he never cancels it. It is coming. At the end of this chapter, in chapter 2, Paul deals with, deals with the Jewish people. I'm going to come back to this next Sunday, I think. I'm also going to come back to something else in chapter 2 next Sunday. But the Jewish people, they believed that they would never be condemned 
to the eternal hell just because they were Jews. We're the special people. And sometimes people even think this in their minds. I'm not going to be condemned by God. I'm not going to be held accountable because of who I am, who my people are, who my forefathers were. And Paul says this is not true. The Jews also are going to suffer the same wrath of God because they do not trust in his son. The last thing I want to tell you this morning is that the only escape from God's wrath is through Jesus. That's the only escape from God's wrath. The only exemption is through Jesus. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. You see, this is Romans 5, 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him, Jesus? For if... While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The only way to be exempt from God's wrath is to come to Christ, to put your faith in Jesus, to trust in His sacrifice as the source of your salvation. It's the only way to be exempt. The only way to escape God's wrath is through Jesus. And that can be yours if you believe in the Son. I'm going to close with a short story. There was a man who had a son He only had one son, and that son, he watched him go through high school. He went to college. He finished college. After he got out of college, he got blessed with a letter from the U.S. government that said he needed to report for duty. Been drafted, called into service to go be an officer, a second lieutenant in the United States Army, and go to Vietnam. Of course, the father is not too happy about this. The son says he'll do his duty. He's going to go to war. His son goes to war, goes through the training, reports for duty, and is killed in Vietnam. His father gets that, that note and visit from an officer says, your son's been killed. The father is, he's, he's tore up. Tore up. Well, the father is a man of great wealth, of, of great means. And so to kind of to um, get, get through it, he decides to go deeper into something he's had a lifelong love of. He goes, he goes wild with collecting art. He's been an art collector his whole life, and now his son is, is passed away, and, and there's no one to leave the money to, so he just decides, I'm going to spend all my money, just I'm going to amass the greatest private collection of art imaginable. And he just goes wild. Buying and buying and collecting and buying. and he has quite a collection. One day there's a knock on the door of his house. And there's, a old, there's a, an old kind of broken up dude who's at the door. And, he, and he's like, what, what do you want? And he said, sir, he said, I was in Vietnam with your son. And your son saved my life. 
And he said, he told me, you know, where you lived here. And he said, you loved art. He said, so I, I sat down and I painted a picture of your son. He said, that's all I can do. He said, your son saved my life. And what, what, I don't know, that's all I can do just to say thank you. I just... The father, he takes the package and they go in the living room and he tears it open. And the painting is, is not that great. I mean, it's just... Ugh. But the father, he says, this is beautiful. This is magnificent. He thanks the man. The man leaves. The father, he takes this picture and he goes and puts it over the mantle in the living room in a place of prominence. And, and everybody who comes over, he would say, I want you to see the, see, my, see the picture of my son. And he would show him the picture, tell him the story. And it became known in the family and in, in the community as the, the son picture. Well, the old guy dies eventually. And all the art collectors of the world, because there's, there, there are no heirs, there's no one to make a claim on the estate, they're going to sell off, all this, sell off all this art. So all the collectors, they come. They come to, to buy the art. You know, they're there, there to, to make a killing, you know, on the last day. And all the collectors are there for the auction, and the auctioneer, he calls everybody to attention. He says, now before we start, we have to sell this picture of the sun first. He said, we can't sell anything else till this is sold. And he starts, let's start the bidding. $500. And all these art collectors, these uh, snobs <laughs> with their wine and cheese, they just sit there. $400. $300. $100. No bidders. Finally, a guy, an old guy at the back says, I'll give $10 for it. And the auctioneer says, Sold. An old man comes up and he gets out an old coin purse and pulls out a $10 bill, gives it to the guy. It was the gardener. He lived in that house, kept up the grounds, and he just, $10. He knew that picture belonged to the master. The master loved it, and he said, so he, he'd seen it, and he, so he bought it. Once the money changes hands, the auctioneer says, auction's over. <laughs> and all these people are ticked off. We've come miles and miles to buy this art. How come we can't get this art? And the auctioneer says, because the father said that whoever has the son, whoever buys the son gets everything. Whoever gets the son gets everything. And my friends, I want to say to you, vile sinners, if you come to the son, all the riches of God's kingdom belong to you. You are made an heir yourself. You are brought in. The heavenly realm is yours. It's promised to you through faith in Jesus as the Lamb who paid for your sins. But if you're here and you're not ungodly, Romans 5, 6 says God didn't die for you. <laughs> in due time for the ungodly, Jesus died to save sinners. Your only exemption is going to be gained through the Son, through Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would take this message and burn it deep into our hearts, Lord. I pray you would save. I pray you would save every person here who's not a Christian. I pray that you would cause every person here who is not a Christian to see their true condition, that they are sinners before you. 
and they would call upon Jesus. They would cry out to him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me, wash me, cleanse me before I die. I pray, Lord, that everyone here who is a Christian would walk out of this house of worship, Lord, with a deep understanding that their righteousness, their exemption from divine judgment is theirs only through Jesus and that we would worship him more fully and more truly. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and glorious name. Amen.